This is Anthony Arino, and you're listening to In the Arena. First, I have to thank Jeff Shore for making an introduction here and recommending this podcast to my next guest. This guest needs no introduction. I could just say Tribes. I could just say Purple Cow. I could just say Lynchpin. I could just say, uh, what are you going to do with that duck? Or I could say, what to do when it's your turn and it's always your turn. My favorite of all of Seth Godin's book. I'm making no other introduction. This is Seth Godin in the arena. Seth Godin, how are you today? Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thank you for being here. This is the first time you and I have ever spoken. And I know that you probably catalog all of the emails you get from people who say, Seth, this is the impact your work has had on me. But I started blogging December 28th, 2009, after reading you blog every day, with the exception of 13 days when I was in Tibet, and it just felt like poor form to not actually be in Tibet and to be thinking about something else. So I just want to say thanks. Your example was the nudge that helped me just start sharing everything fearlessly, regardless of what it was on a daily basis, and it's been transformative. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, and thank you for the leadership that you're bringing. Congratulations on your book, getting the 800 CEO read award. Well done. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. You know, it's a labor of love, right? A book. It's the only kind. <laughs> Me too. Uh, I'm going to ask you a weird question to start out with though, but I, I've been thinking about this and I just want to know what were you like in high school? In my mind, your brain was probably the same then as it is now. And I just have this view of you as like a baseball player where you can actually see the threads on the ball because it's moving slower for you. Yeah, well, most people's recollection of high school has nothing to do with what happened in those key moments in the classroom and everything to do with status roles, social standing, and getting beaten up. (laughs) And I wasn't good at any of those things. So yeah, I was often a step ahead of the typical teacher, but I was bad at being in high school, truly bad at it. (laughs) Well, you're in a better space now. Yes, way better. (laughs) It gets better. That's what I would say to any high school student who's listening. And it does. It gets so much better. All of the other stuff just starts to melt away. Tell me about your writing process. And you write a lot. And I've got all of your books, and we'll talk about a few of those. Do you write in real time or do you have a a process? Do you just write down what strikes you that day or do you write multiple posts in a single sitting? I think it's very important not to talk about this. Okay, I got you. The reason is not that I will lose some sort of magic, but that people will gain secondhand magic that doesn't work very well. Here's what I believe. I believe that literary fiction is not like all other forms of writing. All other forms of writing are very similar to the way we talk. That if you are capable of talking to someone in a way that engages them, then you know how to write. 
And you should figure out what methods and tricks you need to do that organized talking in print, and you should do it. So mine has varied. I did a book that took me eight hours a day for a year to write, and the dip I wrote in 21 days. And some blogs I work on for a year and a half, and some, you know, I'll have a good podcast and a blog post will come out of it five minutes later. I'm sloppy, and I'm not a good role model, but... (laughs) You know, Isaac Asimov was a friend of mine before his death. Isaac wrote and published 400 books. Like, I'm a piker. I only did 18. He did 400. Well, how did he do that? Isaac woke up in the morning and at 6.30 sat down in front of his Underwood manual typewriter and typed until noon. If that works for you, do the Asimov method. But it's not a secret. You just got to write like you talk. You got to keep typing. Do you feel like when you write something like The Dip, that it, it sort of just came through you and you were just like an antenna and it just comes straight out of you? Do you ever feel like you're just picking something up and it has to come out? I think that most people who write, that's how we write. I think that when we talk about how we speak, people don't say, well, I've been thinking about this sentence for a long time. Here's the <laughs> sentence. Yeah. We speak. Writing a book, as you know, is sort of painful and publishing a book is insanely painful. So we only do that for the stuff we have no choice about. We do it because we have to. And yes, the dip, but all the way back to survival is not enough. We're not intentional acts of, I need to make a living by writing a book. They were, I have something I need to share and a book is the best way to do it. Yeah, agreed. I ask you that only because I saw this interview with Keith Richards and he said he didn't write satisfaction. He was just the antenna that it came through. Yeah, there you go. And that's what it sometimes feels like. I just wondered what your opinion was on that. You've been very, very public about your failures. And I don't know that as many people just go come right out and share, this just didn't work and it was terrible and it it, it didn't go anything like I expected. But I I picked up Pima Chodron's book and you wrote the foreword to that book. And I want to just ask you if you would mind sharing the story that starts off the foreword of that book. Just so people get an idea of of sort of how human you might be. I was actually talking to the person in that book, in that story today. <laughs> no way. 20, 30 years later. So my very first book was Business Rules of Thumb, written with Chip Conley, who went on to also become a bestselling writer, which was a weird coincidence. And Chip put me in charge of getting someone to write the foreword, someone famous. So I sent a letter to Andy Tobias, the author I had. He was a brilliant, is a brilliant writer. And I had met him briefly and I wrote him a note and I said, Andy, here's our the manuscript. We'd really like it if you would write the foreword. And Andy wrote back saying, well, I would have, except you spelled the word forward wrong in your note. So I'm not gonna. <laughs> and I was 26 years old and I was just crushed because forward, F-O-R-E-W-O-R-D. So ever since then, every time I've seen the word forward, I flashed back to that early book publishing failure. And when I, I was so flattered when Pema asked me to write the foreword, that I insisted on telling the story and I spelled the word forward, F-O-R-W-A-R-D. <laughs> it's so funny to me. How long, I mean, when you're 26 and something like that happens, your gut hurts for days because there's so much riding on this. And then when you look back, it had very little impact on the trajectory of your life. Well, it had a huge impact. And what was that's, it? that's the point of telling the failure stories is I have learned more and done better with the failures than the successes. That I learned another way not to interact with a human, another way not to tell a story, another way not to build an organization. And I remember those 
And because I've failed more than most people, I'm better at it than they are because I've got more failures in my list. So I don't nurse them. I don't trot them out every time I'm trying to hide. I say to myself, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And then I use it for the next time. What's your favorite one? What'd you learn the most from? Well, I think that the, the broadest lesson comes from the life or death panics that were around in 97 and 98 when I was on the cutting edge of the internet. AOL, our biggest customer, something broke and we fixed it and a week later it broke again. So this woman who was the VP at AOL, who had millions of dollars personally at stake because the stock price was her nest egg, freaked. She just freaked because twice in a row we annoyed 300,000 AOL users. And we've built all these systems and fixed everything. And when it failed the second time, I called her up and I said, look, I'm going to fly down to Vienna, Virginia to apologize in person. And she said, Seth, if you set foot on our campus, I will have you arrested. Right? So I got 50 employees. We're having trouble making payroll. And I've just been threatened with arrest by the vice president of the biggest internet company in the world. So we built out new systems. And a week later, it failed again. (laughs) And so it was over. We were going to, you know, Dan, my head of tech, was going to jump out the window. He realized his office was in a basement. So that wouldn't work. Fortunately, two minutes later, we realized the only thing that had failed was our test bed. And only three of us had ever gotten the email that was broken. So we were fine. And what I realized is, as Ben Zander and Roz Zander would say, don't forget rule six. And rule six is don't take yourself so damn seriously. And we took a deep breath and we did better work and it was okay. And that's almost always what happens. If you're ethical and moral and honest, you get a chance to do better work. So don't take yourself so seriously. You got to have a a pretty strong constitution for work in business, just because there's always going to be some black swan that you don't recognize that that happens. And there you are, and you're stuck to deal with it one way or another. Exactly. Unless you don't care. And the people who don't care have a much easier time getting through life, except they don't do anything that matters. That brings me to another question that I jotted down here for you. I feel like what I'm watching is markets being pulled very strongly in one of two directions. And on one side, there's this pull to be massively transactional and to remove human interaction and to remove caring and to automate. And then on the other end of the continuum, which I don't think is getting a lot of attention, and although you write about things like this frequently, I think there's this super relational high trust, high value, high caring. And I want to ask your opinion on why do you think it is that business people and entrepreneurs seem to be drawn towards the transactional side of this, where there's a mediocre experience, instead of going the other direction and saying, we're supposed to be doing something exceptional and excellent and meaningful. And they work their way towards what I would say is a commodity or less, or less than a commodity. Well, There's a lot of danger that comes from being seen. And if you adopt a dog from the pound, you will notice that the dog won't look you in the eye for a really long time because to look you in the eye is to challenge you. If you're building an entity and you have just a few customers who look you in the eye, you're on the spot. Whereas if you have an endless list of replaceable customers who are just a number, yeah, you don't have to see them. You're off the hook. So this sort of zipless transactional, I got another one, bring them on, makes you feel like you have more power. 
And the idea that there's a potentially infinite audience makes you feel like you have more power. The big rent-a-car companies, if you complain, will likely just say, go to another one. This is not worth our time to make you happy right now. You're an annoying customer. Call Hertz. See you. And they can do that because there's millions of people. And if they lose one or two, it's easier than treating them with respect. But it turns out that most entrepreneurs are never going to build Hertz or even Avis. That we don't have the money, the time, or the insanity to build an entity that has a million or 10 million or 50 million customers. That what we're left with is mattering and caring and connecting. And so I think that is a positive attribute. I think that is a way to dance circles around the big guys because you can't be cheaper than them. So you've got to figure out what better means and better means I see you. Do you see, I mean, I, I think right now there's a lot of hype around entrepreneurship and scaling and exits. And I see young people who want, they say they want to be an entrepreneur and they have a deck and they think that venture capital money and angel investors is the actual end game. But when you start talking about caring and you start talking about actually doing meaningful work and giving people an exceptional experience, they just sort of glaze over like, how do I scale that? And yep. it's not designed to scale very easily. And it's, it's, I don't know if Drucker ever really said this, there seems to be varying opinions, but culture eats strategy for breakfast. And, and there is this cultural component. If you're going to make something great, people have to be aligned around the value of caring and giving people something exceptional rather than just transacting. Brilliant. Yes. And I hope Drucker didn't say that because then I get to say I said it. But <laughs> I'll quote um, you. Steve Blank did say that customer traction is everything. It's the hardest part. If you have customer traction, you don't need to raise money. If you have customer traction, you can buy anything you want. If you have customer traction, technology is not an issue. Customer traction, customer traction, customer traction. Who would miss you if you were gone? And you know, I've been at this for a long time. I was at the first internet bubble, the second internet bubble. I'm in the Bitcoin bubble. I've seen all of this. And what you see is the people who raise a lot of money almost never win. Almost never. Because they use the money to insulate themselves from customers. And the people who don't raise a lot of money can't afford to do that. So when I was building yo we raised $4 million. And we were competing against I1, which raised $80 million. And we were competing against Yahoo which raised, I don't know, $200 million. And we won, right? Because we had customer traction and they had money. Yeah, and money is not a substitute for customers. It's, it's interesting to me how much time we spend on things other than actually just getting a customer and then growing that customer over time. I spend a lot of time with sales organizations and really the focus should be customer acquisition, but it's everything but that. And one, one early investment that I made with a group of people I went to the first board meeting and money was pouring into the company, you know, a million and a half dollars and really, really fast. And I went to the first board meeting and I just asked the question, what's our client acquisition strategy? And I was the skunk at the garden party immediately. It's like, who brought this guy? Why would he talk yeah. about clients? We have all these investors. We've got a deck and we're a technical readiness number four. And, and I'm like, yeah, but to what end? Right that business is no more naturally. The story has a very unhappy ending, but it's getting things in the wrong order. The money comes when you're creating customers and doing good work. Yep. So customer acquisition is part of it, but way bigger is customer maintenance and referral. That if you get customer maintenance and referral, you don't have to acquire anymore. 
they do it for you. The cost of keeping a customer is tiny compared to the cost of gaining a new one. Let me ask you about another trend that I see talked about a lot, but I'm not sure that it makes sense in how to think about it. But there's this statistic that I keep seeing on social media sites about brand loyalty declining. But then I go to an Apple store and (laughs) I mean, it's the only store in the mall that's packed. And apparently they've got plenty of brand loyalty because people are wearing their watches and it's almost a status thing. And I don't know how many days a week I have an Amazon.com box show up at my house, probably every day ending in Y from five family members. I mean, and I have, exactly. the, I have the illness that is books and they'll keep shipping them to you as long as you keep ordering them. And then other people are getting other things. What do you think about brand loyalty? Is brand loyalty declining or is it just it's more difficult for someone who isn't special to generate that brand loyalty? I have two things to say here. The first is Loyalty means something very specific. It means, would you pay extra if you could buy the same thing from someone else? So airlines like to talk about the fact that they have loyalty, but they don't. Because if another airline was a dollar less flying at the same time from one place to another, I'd switch every time for a dollar. I'm not loyal. And maybe they could bribe me with a few frequent flyer points, but not so much, right? So don't claim you have loyal customers if your customers have no choice, right? So that's the first thing is that loyalty is, would you pay extra for the same product? But the second thing is, why is brand loyalty declining? And the answer is because brands have not kept their end of the bargain, that they are scheming behind our back. They're hyping things. They're selling us stuff that they don't believe in. That if you go to buy something online and they say, click here for the insurance policy, they don't really think the insurance is necessary. They're just trying to get four more dollars from you. And then consumers have responded by fighting back by saying, fine, I'll search by price. So if you got sort by price, brand loyalty has gone because it's all the same. Give me the cheap one. So there are exceptions. And you pointed out Apple. It's not almost a status thing. It is a status thing that the only reason people buy new Apple stuff isn't that it's better because it's not. For the first time in the history of computers, it's not. They're buying new Apple stuff because of the status associated with it. And status creates something unique that we can't get from somebody else, hence loyalty. So I think the opportunity for a small business person is to go counter to both those things. Don't race to the bottom. Don't be the cheapest, because if you're the cheapest, you're acknowledging you have no loyalty. And instead, be the most human. Be the most present. Figure out how to show up with stuff that people actually would miss if you were gone. I was talking to a group of salespeople about efficiency and their version of efficiency was email. And what they wanted was, I'm going to get back instead of actually driving two and a half hours to see this client and go through the proposal with them face to face, I'm just going to email it to them because that's efficient. I guess it depends on the outcome that you want. My question was, it, it depends on the outcome. If the outcome is actually serving them where they are and helping them understand the decision you're asking them to make and resolving their concerns, this is the least efficient method. Correct. And if you would like to do business with them, you can't pick a lesser medium than email. I mean, you want to be face-to-face. And the present, two and a half hours for a client that you're going to have for 10 years, it's two and a half hours. It's just not efficient. Here's the thing. If you get a pair of squash shoes, soft, flat bottoms, coat them in water and run on a freshly Zambonied ice skating rink, you're not going to make it very far. 
And the reason is there's no friction. Friction is not your enemy. Friction is your friend. Friction gives you traction. Traction helps you move forward. You have been writing about the end of the Industrial Revolution. And and in my opinion, you've been trying to lay out the emerging rules or what I might call the operating principles for the, the age that we live in, whether you want to call it, I don't know if it's the information age, the digital age. I call it the age of constant accelerating disruptive change because that's what it feels like. It just doesn't stop. It's unrelenting. But whatever it is, if you had to talk to young people to explain to them the mindset that they have to have to live in the world where the certainty now is gone. And this is the one thing I notice with older people that they're really struggling with now is that all the certainty is gone, where the rules that we had growing up are now they've disappeared. So you can't follow those anymore. So the mindsets and the skill sets, what would you tell someone about how you operate in this world? I'm not ready to say certainty is gone. I just think it's different. I think that economies are based on scarcity from the Greek for scarce economics. And the things that are scarce are shifting. So when artificial intelligence shows up, brain dead labor is not scarce, free. Competence, no longer scarce. I can find competence on Fiverr for $5. Real estate, no longer scarce. Not if you're in retail. You can go into any mall in America and find an empty spot, no problem. So what's scarce? And what's going to get more scarce? Attention and trust. If you have earned people's trust and can borrow their attention, you will never have trouble earning a living. On the other hand, if you have no trust or you have no attention, you will never be able to make a living. So if you're busy graduating from school, fully competent, you're doomed because competent doesn't earn you attention and it makes it hard to earn trust. What we have to figure out how to do is dig in deep enough that we can be different enough that a computer can't do our job and that someone two clicks away can't do our job. Not an easy task. But that's back to the the shoes on the ice skating rink. Sure, it's not easy. That's exactly why it's worth doing because it's going to scare most people away. It's not going to scare you away so you can create value. I continually tease audiences that I speak to, mostly full of salespeople, that you only need two things to be a trusted advisor. And the first is trust. And the second is advice. I mean, it's a very, very simple recipe. It's just only got two ingredients. But if you don't really have the advice and you can't really help people and you don't have a way to create value, then I think it gets very, very difficult to be in business now. And I think that a lot of business just, it's so transactional now that the differentiation comes from, can you really make a difference? Do you really care? Are you really going to be present? Are you really going to own these outcomes and be accountable for it? I see those as differentiators now. Absolutely. And school burns it out of most of us. We have a family friend who wants to be an actor and he got to college and he applied for the improv troupe and there were 11 slots and he came in 12th. And I said, start your own improv troupe. (laughs) It's improv. (laughs) He couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Even an improv troupe was too daunting because there was no one to tell him what to do. My uh, son is at Denison University as a theater major. And my mom, when I moved to Los Angeles to front a hair metal band in 1990, <laughs> <laughs> that is just mean, Seth, to laugh at that. <laughs> I uh, think I'm entitled. <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. My mom would send me little clips from Reader's Digest, motivational stuff. And then I said, my son's going to college to be an actor. And she said, he should be in business school. <laughs> 
And I said, this is the same woman that sent me clips from Reader's Digest, you know, to, to keep me motivated while I'm in L.A. playing in a, a hard rock band. And to her mind, though, the safe thing is to get a business degree. And sure. I had to say, Mom, in two phone calls, I can have him placed. I mean, this, this is not a hard thing to do to get a job in business. But to be creative and to be involved, he's involved. I'm going to see him in Skechers tonight, which is their sketch comedy troupe. Fabulous. Where I've been forewarned that his is the dirtiest script of all of them. And he asked me to warn his mother tonight. So I have to try to manage that. But I think it's this creativity. It's the ability to create and take something where there's nothing and make something that's more valuable than a lot of what we got in a traditional education where it's just rote memorization of facts and no engagement. Exactly right. I want to sum up a couple things here that I've noticed. I find that your work is really and you can push back on this. My view is it's about helping people find the courage to do something and to make a difference. And if that's true, or if you accept that premise, what have you found to be most effective in actually helping people take action? And I'm watching your videos on the Alt-MBA and things like that, where it looks like it's having a profound effect on helping people do something that they already wanted to do before they got there. Right. So I figured out the answer and it took me a long time. The single best way to help people get to do something is to have them do something. Now, the thing that they do doesn't have to be the last thing that they want to do, the big thing they want to do. It's the forward motion that talking at people, reassuring them, lecturing them, informing them is insufficient. But the way you learn to ride a bike, And the way you learn to juggle and the way you learn to walk is by riding a bike, juggling and walking. So that's how my practice has shifted is that I'm not really bending over backwards to find a new thing to say. I'm trying to find environments where I can give people a safe place to act as if a safe place to try it out. Because it turns out that if you get into that habit and do it for 30 days, as we do at the Alt-MBA or the marketing seminar for 100 days, then you're rolling. And people who wanted to get somewhere all along can't believe how fast they're going now because we got them rolling. What do you think that is? It's the, the fact that they have to take action that eliminates the talking and the trying to decide and all of the stuff that we do. That's really not doing the work, but we pretend like it's doing the work. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple parts of it. The one part of it is that the part of our brain that's afraid, the amygdala, can't process the English language. It's visceral. It's right next to our brainstem. It's just chemicals. So we got to trick it. And the way we trick it is by making it more scary to do nothing than to do a little thing. And if you do that, you seduce the amygdala into lowering its guard. Because when you come back to do it again, it's like, oh, yeah, that wasn't so bad last time. And so the cycle persists. On the other hand, if you reassure yourself and if you're busy hiding, the amygdala goes into high alert. And it's really hard to overcome that. It's been with us for a long time. I mean, that, yeah. that, that fear. And it comes down to identity and membership in the tribe and a whole bunch of paleolithic things that we don't like to look at, but that are still what I would say the deeper structures of human beings than the rational thought. In fact, I've decided I don't think humans are rational at all. I just think we're rationalizing. You know, we, right. we find the narrative after we decide what we want. And In one sentence, you just summed up Dan Dennett's life's work. 
it, I was in a workshop with a guy who told me every decision was objective. And then I asked him about the spreadsheet he used when he decided to propose to his wife and how many different columns he had. And he said she made the decision. So I said, okay, so she's the irrational actor. We went to lunch and he came back in and he had a sandwich and he said, I really shouldn't be eating this sandwich. I just really want it. <laughs> and there I you said, go. I understand. That's totally an objective decision that you made. Um, <laughs> all of your books are great. I have favorites. Lynchpin, one of my all-time favorites. Tribes, one of my all-time favorites. Purple Cow. But my all-time favorite has to be What to Do When It's Your Turn. And oh, you. I bought a box of that, and I was teaching an undergrad class, and I passed the book out. And I think about three people got it and said, I'm going to do something. And that helped me spark them along. But your your work in general reminds me of something. Have you ever read Talib stuff, Black Swan, Anti-Fragile? Sure. Yeah. yeah, he's brilliant. He's just amazing. Anti-Fragile is one of the best things I ever read. But when I read that one, what st- stuck out to me is that he basically said, all of these books are really just one big book. And that there's a greater difference between the chapters in two books than the difference between the two books themselves. And I wonder if you find that true for you. And if there is a thread in your work that says this is really one, one big idea or one big underlying theme that you found lots of different views of and different ways to share. Okay. So there are lots of ways to think about what it means for something to even be a book now. I believe my work since permission marketing, I did 120 books before that that don't count. But since permission marketing, my work has had an arc. And it feels consistent to me. But that's not the way I think of a book. I view a book as a tool, a ball peen hammer or a roofing hammer, or I don't know any other kinds of hammers. And you pick up the hammer you need on the day you need it. So books are big and small and expensive and cheap. And I made a 17 and a half pound book and I made a book that's only 90 pages. The ideas are free. The packaging is what you're paying for, the container that it comes in, the ability to hand it to somebody else. So with what to do when it's your turn, I don't sell one copy, can't buy one copy. Three copies, five copies, I have a 12 copy set, a 99 copy set. What would you do with 12 copies? Well, you give 11 of them away. And that's the function of the tool. The tool in that case is it's a safe book to give away because it's not that many words in it, drip by drip by drip, getting under people's skin. But the act of giving it away is why I wrote it. So you could give it away. That's different than why I wrote Survival is Not Enough, which Charles Darwin wrote the foreword for, (laughs) F-O-R-E-W-O-R-D. And that book was designed for a different audience, for a different purpose, to reach a different kind of person, different way. So they're tools. And I love them all, but they all have a different purpose. It's a very utilitarian view of a book. It just carries around the idea like a hammer. Exactly. I can't leave without talking. What about the 120 books? How do those not count? Why can you say there's 120 before this that don't matter? Well, it's not that they didn't matter. It's that they didn't count, which is different. So there was a problem in the book industry in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, which is 40,000 books were published every year, but complicated nonfiction books, illustrated books were difficult to make. And a single human being couldn't make an almanac, for example, but we needed almanac. So book packagers showed up. And a book packager is like a movie producer for a book. So I did the Information Please Business Almanac. I did the People Magazine Celebrity Almanac. I did the Beardstown Ladies Common Sense Investment Guide. I invented but did not 
end up profiting from the dummies books. There were two dummies books in the world, DOS for dummies and Windows for dummies. And I said, why don't we just figure out how to make lots of dummies books? I could do that. So the idea was I was a practitioner of a craft of turning complicated ideas into complicated books. But I wasn't an author, even though my name was on the cover sometimes. And with permission marketing, there were one or two before that, but with permission marketing, I became an author in quotation marks. And so that's where I say the arc really began. What year was that? 98. Okay. So we're coming up on another anniversary with the zero. What's on deck next? Well, you know, these two courses that we run, the marketing seminar and the Alt-MBA, they're workshops. They work better than anything I've ever done on a per capita basis. So not a lot of people, 4,000 at a time or so, but they work beautifully. So I think we're on to an even more powerful hammer, a better way to change education. So we're building this team. The work is mine, but the team makes it magic. And we'll see if there's another course in the works. But in the meantime, we'll keep doing these two to help people level up because that's my mission. That's what's always been my mission. Do you want to give me the web addresses for that? We'll put them in the show notes for anybody oh, who wants to explore this. Thank you. So the, the marketingseminar.com launches again in January. We only do it a few times a year. The altmba.com, completely oversubscribed for the January session, but the spring one will happen in March and April. You're as utilitarian as I am with a blog called The Sales Blog and the Marketing Seminar. What would you call it? Marketing Seminar. <laughs> what, what else would you call it? Exactly. Seth, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for the work you do. We'll see you soon. That was the inimitable Seth Godin, and you can find him at sethgodin.typepad.com. If you're not already reading his blog every day, it might be eight paragraphs long. It might be two lines. No matter what the amount of content is, it's worth your attention. Check it out there. Do look for the Alt-MBA and the marketing seminar in the show notes. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com, where I publish daily. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino, where I post most days. When you go to either one of those, look for the link to the newsletter. My Sunday newsletter will show up in your inbox Sunday morning so you can hit the ground running on Monday. Until next time, I'll see you in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.